You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. Amplifying the voices of strong, successful, and inspiring women is more important than ever and absolutely essential in today's world. That's why this podcast is so important. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Gigi Osler, also known as Senator Gigi Osler. Senator Osler is an internationally renowned surgeon, an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba, and a dedicated advocate for equity, diversity, and inclusion. She has broken barriers and shattered glass ceilings in the medical field. As the first woman surgeon and the first racialized woman elected president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Osler has been a trailblazer in advocating for equity and diversity in healthcare. But what makes Dr. Osler even more remarkable is her gratitude and awareness of the supportive network that helped her achieve success. She is a feminist who wants women to take up space and believes in the power of mentorship and role modeling to inspire and uplift other women. Dr. Osler's journey from being born to immigrant parents from the Philippines and India to becoming a role model, research supervisor, and mentor for Filipino and other racialized medical students is a testament to the resilience and determination of women who strive to succeed despite facing systemic barriers. It's essential to share these stories like Dr. Osler's to give other women hope and encouragement to pursue their dreams, no matter how challenging they may seem. I hope that her story inspires my listeners to break barriers and shatter glass ceilings of their own while advocating for equity and diversity in their fields. A small housekeeping note before we jump in, this podcast was recorded prior to the Government of Canada banning TikTok on government devices. I encourage you to keep up with Senator Osler on her other social channels as she is a wealth of information both in medicine and politics. So, without further ado, please meet Senator Gigi Osler. So, I guess the first place we need to start is, how should we address you? I mean, it's Dr. Osler, or Senator Osler, or TikTok sensation, Gigi Osler. (laughs) Well, of all of those, I think the least appropriate is TikTok sensation. Um, And, you know, it's a really odd place to be right now because I'm so used to being called Dr. Osler. Uh, And here, when I'm in the Senate, when I'm in Ottawa, it's always, oh, Senator, hello, Senator, hello, Senator. So it's a kind of odd place to be because I I am both. Um, So right now, it sometimes depends on where I am. Certainly in clinical settings, I'm Dr. Osler. When I'm here in Ottawa, Senator Osler. Um, But for this conversation, please call me Gigi. um, And I will answer to both Senator Osler and Dr. Osler. Wonderful. Well, I have to say I did find you through TikTok. So I want to start there because Mm -hmm. I'm curious why you decided to use that platform to share your messaging. It's a good question. And I'm going to take you back a few years. So when it comes to social media and the different platforms, I've been on social media for a number of years and um, Twitter was my first platform. And and that is a platform where you will probably find most health professionals, certainly most physicians. Um, 
from there, I developed, uh, well, I started an Instagram account and started to develop um, some of my presence and messaging on Instagram. Uh, I'm not as active on Facebook. And then through some of my previous medical leadership roles, in those roles, you had to, didn't have to, but you, you were on uh, media all the time and hence social media to deliver some of your messaging. I'm a, a past president of the Canadian Medical Association. I'm a past president of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada. So being in front of media and on social media was a role that came more naturally to me than to most physicians. Fast forward to spring of 2020 and the pandemic is just starting. And I think I joined TikTok in January or February of 2020. Really sort of pre-pandemic or right when it was hitting our consciousness. As the concerns about the pandemic grew, and especially as we started to go into lockdowns across the country, I realized there were not many health professionals or physicians on TikTok in particular. And I thought to myself, how can I use this platform? And I had maybe 10 followers at the time, like not very many, uh, but how can I use this platform to help share public health information? How can I help share information about the pandemic? Because if you think back to those early days in the spring of 2020, so much was unknown about the virus. So much was unknown about how it would be transmitted. Um, things were happening so quickly in terms of this is happening there, this is happening there, that I started to use all of my platforms and TikTok to help share some of the uh, public health messaging and, and health information about the virus. And it sort of grew from there. Um, so I, I found TikTok a really interesting platform to be on. That's where you and I have connected and met. Um, and it, it's just such an interesting platform to be and to continue to see how it's going to grow and expand. And, you know, for better or for worse, it is a platform where many people are getting a lot of their information. It is. And it's it's overtaking Google for search uh, searches on the internet. But the thing that I'm curious about is you started this obviously as a doctor, uh, a private citizen. Now you're a senator. Has it changed the way you approach your TikToks? Is there an extra thought you have to put into what you share with this new role? Certainly. And I've always tried to be someone on social media who is positive, um, someone who tries to be um, engaging, uh, someone who tries to provide educational content, um, and somebody who can present information that is helpful to people, whether it's information on health, information on politics, information on the healthcare system. So I, I know my niche. Um, and try to find ways to present that information in those short clips to be educational, but in a way that people will want to watch and learn. Now, do I get it right? No, I'm I am not huge by any means. Um, but now some of my content is providing people who follow me or if I come across your FYP, information about what does the Senate do because I have this new role. Um, what are we studying in the Senate? And so uh, I think I, I will continue to try to be positive, 
try to be educational and informative and continue to do that in an engaging way, or at least a way I hope is engaging with people. Well, that sort of brings me to my next question, because you're now in a very political role. And of course, we're living in times where there seems to be this massive political divide uh, globally, not just in Canada. But with your role, you know, how do you hope to bring people together in, in the center somehow? And Candace, you just said exactly what I was about to say. I I would like to continue to not only be informative, provide some educational content, but be someone who will try to bring people together more through those means and not be divisive. Part of our my appointment to the Senate is to be an independent, nonpartisan senator to really truly provide that sober second thought, thorough consideration and deliberation of the bills that come to the Senate. And so in that role, and and this touches on what you just asked about, you know, now does being a senator change my content or change how I'm going to interact on social media? Uh, it This new role really shows to me um, an opportunity to share with Canadians, certainly, but the public the work we do in the Senate, what we do. I would like my information and content to be uh, one that does not divide. I'm not partisan, but I do want to help to bring people together. And and certainly many of the things that I talk about, health and healthcare, are nonpartisan issues, in in my opinion. Everybody deserves health. Um, Canadians especially, we deserve a healthcare system looks after everyone. And so the content I deliver will hopefully bring people together and not split people further. So so let's move out to the role then of the Senate and the Senate uh, itself. You know, we see uh, the House of Commons and this yelling and shouting and, you know, uh, that typical behavior we're, we're all used to. And Johnny McDonald called the Senate the the chamber of sober second thought, which is actually kind of funny if you know your history about Johnny McDonald. <laughs> so, but uh, do you do you agree with that? Is it a place of reason? I've been very impressed with my Senate colleagues, and I've been very impressed with the debate and the conversations and discussions that we've had on the various legislation that we are studying right now. Now, keep in mind, I'm what I call a baby senator. I was only appointed in October. So I am now four months old, still learning the processes and procedures. And I'm really trying to dive into the legislation to understand it better. The senators that I'm working with that I have as colleagues right now really do embrace that role of the Senate as that chamber of sober second thought, not just to rubber stamp legislation that comes through, but to look at it, think about it, study it, and make it better. And make it better for all Canadians, regardless of partisan or political affiliation. I am seeing that hard work in the Senate Um, And that's why sometimes you'll hear people kind of mutter and say, oh, something is, quote unquote, stuck in the Senate. I would say it's not stuck, but it is being given that 
time for us to really delve into it and to hear um, witnesses from all different sides of the argument to really understand the legislation better and perhaps propose amendments to make it better. So did you anticipate this role was coming your way? Because I I can't imagine what you do to prepare for a role like this. Let, let me tell you my long story. I'm going to try to shorten it a little bit. Um, I never, ever, ever in my wildest dreams imagined I would be here in Ottawa. And I'm actually recording this from my office in the Senate. And I pinch myself every day that I'm here. I think to myself, I'm like, holy moly, how did I get here? I'm a surgeon by training and had imagined my life would be a life as a busy surgeon. I've got a family. I was busy balancing work and career and family and life. Now, I have had leadership roles in some provincial uh, medical organizations and some national medical organizations. And I was super happy. I thought that was um, going to be how I, I lived my life. And that was going to be how I served. Um, and then and this opportunity came to be appointed to the Senate. And um, it was, as I say, a, a tap on the shoulder moment because I never pictured myself here. Now, for listeners, if you are a Canadian, if you're a Canadian citizen and you meet some constitutional requirements and some merit-based criteria, you can apply to become senator in Canada. Now, there has to be an open Senate seat in your prop. Because in my mind, I always thought, oh, you have to be some baron of industry. You have to be some very politically affiliated person, which I'm not. The Senate is uh, has undergone some reform and, and really is trying to develop senators and have a Senate that um, is diverse and representative Canada and independent, so less political affiliation. So when this opportunity came up, it was a tap on the shoulder. We had an open Senate seat in Manitoba, and I had a me, why me moment for a very brief period of time. But this opportunity spoke to not only my passion to serve, but my passion to um, be part of positive change. You know, certainly when I look at the healthcare system right now, I think everyone across Canada can say our healthcare system is in disarray and needs some work. This was an opportunity, is an opportunity to be in government to help shape our country's future, and not just in healthcare, but in all aspects. And so I never imagined myself being here, uh, but when the opportunity came, I thought to myself, yes, I think I hesitated about applying or not for maybe a few seconds, and I thought, no, this is an opportunity that you know many people don't even think is ever open to them. And uh, so I grabbed the opportunity, ran with it, and now here I am. Well, here's what I love about this, and I hope people listening will run over to your TikTok account because this is why. Because we are learning with you. you. As you are learning your role, you are sharing with us, which I think is fascinating. And, uh, you know, we're learning so much. I, I watched a video you did um, about Sexual and Reproductive Health Week. 
Is this a big area of focus for you as a senator? This week, the week that we're recording this is Sexual and Reproductive Health Week. And I was given an opportunity to stand up in the Senate uh, and read a short statement uh, about the week. And I wanted that to be an opportunity to share with my fellow colleagues in the Senate. And the um, Senate sessions are recorded, so anyone can go to senate.ca, look at any of the sessions. I was provided with a short clip of my statement, which then I was able to share on my different platforms. Um, so uh, I'm, uh, I identify as a woman. Uh, I identify as a feminist. And part of what I believe is important is access to health care for all of Canada's citizens. And we know in healthcare that there are healthcare access issues across the country. And with this being Sexual and Reproductive Health Week, um, I think there are things here in Canada we cannot take for granted. Access to many healthcare services for uh, women or for people who can uh, become pregnant or for people who identify as women um, are not where they should be. And so part of my statement in the chamber was to talk about these are healthcare services where access is being limited or is limited, and we cannot take access to health for, for granted. We cannot take access to some healthcare services for granted. In my statement, and, and I've written op eds where I have said abortion care is healthcare. And in Canada, abortion care is healthcare. So I'm not going to debate. And I'm not going to get into the, that debate, but here in Canada, abortion care is health care. Access to contraceptive services is health care. Um, why don't we have universal coverage for contraception? We could, you know, and for listeners, uh, know that the federal government has pledged a national farm care. So we have to keep all of these in mind. So, you know, when it comes to contraception, what can we do to ensure that the legislation, our elected officials, that your appointed officials think about all of these healthcare issues, and in particular ones that affect um, women, people who can become pregnant, people who identify as women. How can we continue to keep some of those topics top of mind? And so my statement was to bring awareness to that week, but to also say, you know, there's a lot of issues in Canada related to health and healthcare that we should continue to work on and make better. I'm curious then, how can you, as a senator, can you drive change or do you, which way does the information flow, mm -hmm. I guess is essentially what I'm saying. I know the House of Commons sends things through the Senate, you review them, you send mm -hmm. them back. Can that move the other way as well? Mm -hmm. So bills can originate from either the House of Commons or from the Senate. And I'll give you an example. So there's a, a Senate colleague of mine from Manitoba, Senator Mary Jane McCallum, who introduced a uh, bill into the Senate last year uh, for National Ribbon Day. And it was a, her bill originated in the Senate, passed in the Senate, went to the House of Commons, passed in the House of Commons. And so now it's a law, a law 
And now there is a national, oh, sorry, ribbon skirt day. And so bills can originate in either house. And your question, Candice, about you know, how do you affect change and how can you have impact? That's what I'm still trying to figure out. I think, you know, we work with our, the ministers, we can work with our MP colleagues, we can work with our Senate colleagues. Some bills the Senate cannot introduce, and those are the money bills. But there is a possibility that you know, certain bills related to health care could start to come from the Senate. I'm not saying they will, but we do have uh, a growing number of healthcare professionals in the Senate, which, which really excites me. So prior to my appointment in, I was appointed at the end of the September. Prior to that, there were four physicians, uh, Senator McCallum, so one dentist and four senator, uh, four physicians were senators. Then I was appointed. Then uh, in December, another physician was appointed, uh, someone who's uh, an incredible researcher, a health research, researcher, Senator Greenwood was appointed. So we're, we have this growing group in the Senate with a health background. So we have been having conversations to better understand, especially us senators who are new, uh, more the how. Like, how can we help shape this country's future? How can we help make the health of Canadians better? How can we make the healthcare systems better. So I, I'm still learning. I don't have all of the answers, but, it, and that's what excited me about this role because it's an opportunity that I never thought of myself having before. And now that I'm here, I'd like to see, you know, how can we make things better? So I'm going to throw us back on the timeline now, way, way back. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit what shaped you to become this incredible person that you are. I mean, you're you're a physician, you're a senator, you're you're out there with with opinions on women's reproductive rights and climate change. How did and and I must I might also add a very uh, you know strong feminist, which is my love language. So let's you know what shaped all of this. That's a great question. And for me, um, my mother is uh, an immigrant from the Philippines. And, you know, I, she tells her story a lot, and, I, and I've thought about it a lot. She came to Canada in the 1960s, early 60s, um, as one of the first waves of uh, nurses that came. The nurses were recruited from the Philippines, and she was young. like She was just out of nursing school. And my mom's a strong, independent woman, and I, I think back to what she did in her early 20s moved across the world with some girlfriends, but didn't have any family here, really didn't know about the climate or the country, but had this strong, headstrong independent streak to her. Now, know that when, when I was a teenager, we, we would butt heads, um, but she really raised me to be a strong independent woman. She always said, get an education. That way you can stand on your own two feet and you will not have to rely on anybody else. So like many Asian parents, getting an education was important. My father was the physician. So he inspired me to go into medicine because I would see him leave early in the morning and come back late in the evening. And he was just this quiet, humble, humble man. 
Um, and I remember when I got into medical school, he was so, so proud. I, I think as those have probably been the two biggest driving forces in shaping who I am now. And, and again, I think, I thank you for your kind words, but I really pictured myself being a physician doing the work that every physician does and working hard, balancing, I was balancing a family life and career. But I, I will say probably when my kids were about 10, 12 years old, uh, I thought, you know, they're older now. I, I'd like to do something more. I'd like to, to give back more. I'd like to serve. Uh, what more can I do? And, and it was around that time, 10, 12 years ago, I started to work with some other provincial, national, medical organizations. That then led to me having to develop my communication skills, leadership skills, because by nature, I'm actually a very shy and quiet person. But to be able to do all of these things, I thought, okay, I have to push myself out of my comfort zone. And to be comfortable outside of my comfort zone, I thought, I have to learn some new skills. Started taking different courses, learning from different mentors. And then I kept myself open to opportunities. I believed in myself, even if others didn't believe in me, so that when opportunities would come up, when I would get a tap on the shoulder saying, tap, tap, Gigi, why don't you run for this? Tap, tap, Gigi, why don't you think about doing this? I, even though I was often terrified at doing it, thought to myself, this is an opportunity for change. Don't let my fears hold me back. And let, and I have this slide that I use in my presentations, and it always, it, I often end with it in a slide that says, you know, her passion burned brighter than her fears. And so I would think about that as all of these opportunities came up. And, you know, we, we have to sometimes put ourselves out there. We have to put ourselves out there, you know, as a daughter of immigrants, um, so privileged to be in this country. Um, not a lot of women in different leadership sectors. I thought, I, I have to put myself out there so that others can see it can be done. Um, if she's doing it, oh, you know, maybe I can do it. Why not me? I, I suspect people will be listening to this and be inspired by you. I can't see how they couldn't be. But who do you draw inspiration from in the here and now? Who do you look to that moves you forward? Um. I, you know, so you'd be, you might be surprised, but I look to some of the generation ahead of me, some of my generation, but I probably get the most fuel from my passion, the most inspiration from the generation behind me. And I think I'm Gen X. I'm 54, so I think that makes me Gen X. But when I look at young people, um, I was at, uh, an event a few days ago with medical students at the University of Manitoba. And I looked out into this you know, audience of young, passionate medical students who want to look after patients, who want to change healthcare, who want to make health better for Canadians. And I talked to them afterwards and I was listening to their ideas and I, I was inspired. When I see what's happening uh, with the climate crisis and how it is a clear and present danger, not only to climate, but 
for every sector, for all of our ways of living. And when I see my own kids and younger generations and and people advocating for change, I think, you know, I, I have to start being part of that change. I cannot sit and say, well, you know, I can't do anything about it because I actually am in a position where I can start to do something about it. When I see that kind of passion and drive, that inspires me. That fuels me to continue to do the important work for every generation that comes after me. It's funny that you say that because I, it's, you know, I often, you know, on social media, I am looking at these younger uh, women and I am thinking, gosh, you guys are so smart. Where did this come from? They are truly inspiring watching, uh, I guess, Gen Z, uh, you know, come up now. Uh, they're, they're so smart and be, they're so informed, uh, maybe a little over-informed sometimes, but they're definitely informed. Uh, and so I love that you, you said that. And I think that's great. Um, one quick thing that last you said about balance, you, you mentioned balance. It's so elusive. I, I, I don't believe you could have any be, uh, currently. I mean, how do you, Me? as a surgeon and a senator and a mom and a dog mom, because I watch you calling your dogs on TikTok. Oh, I love my dogs. How do you find balance right now? And maybe not balance, but how do you maintain some semblance of sanity with all you're doing? You know, Candace, I think you're absolutely right, man. You know, part of what I used to talk on a lot, and I, you know, I'm heartened to see more people talk about burnout and balance. You know, we used to talk about work-life balance, and it's a false dichotomy. You you can have work and you can have life, and it, it's not a matter of doing more work and losing your life, or having your life and losing your work. And it it, it often is that, but I think you have to find some way to to blend it or to integrate it. I don't like the idea of pitting work versus life. You know, if you want to do this, you have to give up that. And so it's a good question. And one thing about me and I've learned about myself is that sometimes I get so passionate about many things. I say yes to many things and I take on too much. And then I start to realize, oh, I'm not looking after myself enough. Um, it is about finding the things that you can do and that you're really passionate about and that you have an opportunity to do. So for me, and certainly in the first couple of months in this new job in the Senate, I was trying to do both. You know, be a physician back when I was in Winnipeg, be a senator when I was here in Ottawa. And you know, it just I realized I was out of balance. So now I'm trying to reorganize things and integrate things. So maybe I can do both. But um, I look at this stage for me as a new stage. Now I've got two kids, but they're grown. You know, they're one's twenty-two, one's almost twenty-six. Um, I've uh, a fantastic family support system. I have a fantastic uh, work-life support system, and so I've had to rely on some of those systems to help me do all of the things I want to do. Um, when my kids were younger, it was a lot tougher, but again, I relied on, you know, a lot of my personal support system family to help with life when 
you know, someone's got a soccer practice here and somebody's got a dance lesson there. And, oh, look at that. I've got um, clinic until six. And then, oh, look at that. My uh, you know, surgical slate's running late. It's a lot of scramble. I, but I've got, you know, an incredible husband, two incredible grown kids who actually now help pitch in to help me do everything that I'm doing here. So I found over the years it's changed. I can't do it all. I'm not one of those super women, um, but I do have a lot of support systems that I've had to develop over the years. And I love that you're you're not sitting there, you know, championing doing it all on your own and that acknowledging we do need help at times. Oh, so yeah. that, it's wonderful. So outside of your work, though, you've been a key voice in raising awareness of the health impacts of climate change in Canada. <laughs> so can you speak to the ways in which climate change is affecting the medical field and what steps could be taken to mitigate these effects? Well, you know, it, it's really interesting. We've all... Um, heard about the climate crisis. And I think over the last few years, it certainly has percolated more in, in people's minds. But when we started talking about this, and I'll go back to my days at the CMA, the, the Canadian Medical Association, maybe around 2017, 2018, we really weren't talking much about the impact of climate change on health. And we would sometimes even have focus groups with other healthcare professionals, and we'd ask, you know, can you tell us how is climate change impacting your patient's health? Some would see the link and connection. Others would say, oh, you know, I, I really don't think it is. And maybe at that time, the conversations were more around, you know, carbon taxes. And, and that's what people thought of. But then if you look at some of the heat waves that we've had across the country and the death particularly of seniors or vulnerable people, as a result of some of those heat waves. Look at the wildfires that we've had and how whole communities have had to be um, evacuated. Sorry, heat waves, forest fires. Um, I've got some colleagues who work up north. You know, I've got one colleague who works ER in Yellowknife, and they've had whole summers of smoke where people have had to stay indoors, where the rates of respiratory disease, asthma exacerbations have gone up. Um, some of the horrible flooding. It's just now, I think, and physicians, and you'll see other people start to talk about how climate and the changes is impacting health and impacting whole communities. So the way of life of entire communities in northern Canada significantly affected. I live in Winnipeg. Uh, can I say that in my community in Winnipeg, we've really seen some of those hard, hard changes? No, but I think having those conversations, raising awareness, making people aware of the impacts of climate change, not just on infrastructure in the country, but it is affecting health. It is affecting um, asthma rates. It is affecting emergency departments because if there's a lot of smoke, more people are going to have to be indoors in the summer when the smoke's really bad. So it is thinking about how is it impacting people? How is it impacting populations? Within the healthcare sector, we're starting to have conversations too about how can we as a sector have a smaller carbon footprint, um, you know, within the healthcare system, hospitals, medical offices, things like that. So 
I think it's a necessary part of the conversation that, you know, we're really trying and with governments, you know, letting governments know that not only do you need to talk about carbon offsets and greenhouse gas emissions, but, you know, understand that these changes are impacting health now and we need to make changes that will mitigate not just the crisis, but improve health for the future. Well, I would say certainly in Ottawa, we're feeling the effects of climate change this year with uh, the Rideau Canal not opening for the first time in 50 years. Uh, That's huge. Uh, So I think that conversation has to be forefront for everybody. And I think health is the biggest impact. I mean, if we don't have that, we don't have anything, obviously. Exactly. So as a successful surgeon advocate for equity and diversity, what advice would you give young women who are pursuing careers in the medical field or looking to make an impact in their communities? Uh, it's, it's a great question. And, and believe me, you know, I think it's a piece of advice, not just for young women, but for um, anyone who perhaps doesn't feel like they um, fit into something. So let me give you a quote from um, an English historian. Her name is Mary Beard, B-E-A-R-D. And one of her books, she writes, you cannot fit women into a structure that is coded as male. You have to change the structure. Now, I often use that quote in a slide when I give presentations, but I follow that slide up with another slide where I've taken out the word women and I've taken out the word male. So you cannot fit into a structure that is coded as. And I say, well, you know what? Let's substitute black and white. Let's substitute indigenous and white. Let's substitute trans and cis. Because it then opens up this whole thinking of the systems and structures around us, which, Candace, were not built for us. Let me talk about medicine. Medicine was not built for women. The structure of medicine, medical school training, residency training, the whole hierarchy. I mean, it was built in an era when doctors were men and white men. And so if you don't fit into that structure, you feel like this square peg trying to fit yourself into this round hole and you contort yourself and you try to do this and you act a certain way and you change who you are and you you think to yourself, why am I not succeeding? Because that structure, that system was not built for you. So what do you do? Well, start to realize it. You start to see it. You start to think, okay, what do I need to do to change the structure? And so often in my presentations, I say medicine, um, you know, medicine, it's built on the patriarchy. Not only is it built on the patriarchy here in Canada, it is built on colonialism. And then you start to think about that. And, you know, it's not just about the people working in the system. It's also about patients. It's about the populations. It's about, you know, the Canadians. It's about the people we serve, everybody who wants to access health care. I'm getting to a point. So, you know, as I think about all of that, when I meet up with um, other people who feel the same way, younger women, 
Younger men who don't fit into that, racialized people, I say to them, first of all, you got to believe in yourself. You have to believe that you are as intelligent and as smart as you are. Because I think imposter syndrome, which many of us feel, is a social construct. You feel like an imposter, like you don't belong there, because that structure was not built for you. So of course you're going to feel like an imposter. So believe in yourself is the first one. And the second one is um, take up space. I, I see it quite often sometimes, and if I use Say women at medical meetings or at board meetings, sometimes you go in, you just, you know, you sit in the back. You don't want to sit at the table. You're, oh, well, take a seat in the second row, even though you may deserve to be at that table. Take up that space. You know, if you belong there, take up that space. Don't make yourself small. Don't think, oh, I have to be so quiet. Take up your rightful space. And you are definitely taking up yours, which I love. Uh, you're just fantastic. And so we get you for a long, long time in the Senate. You're not going yes. anywhere, right? No. It's until you retire. Is that correct? Um, so I am appointed until I turn 75. There's mandatory retirement at 75 um, or until I resign or until I die, if I die before 75. Well, Let's hope that you just retire at 75 <laughs> and and you can accomplish all these great things that you've set your sights on. I want people to be able to um, keep up with you and connect. And so obviously I'm going to put your TikTok channel in the liner notes, but you have more important places as well where people can be informed. So where else can they connect with you? Well, I am on uh, Twitter. So social media, you know, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, on the Senate, we have a website with all of our biographies. Uh, our email is public. And so, you know, especially from uh, anybody from Manitoba, I represent Manitoba, but I represent all Canadians as well, but especially Manitoba. But, you know, if anybody has any concerns, um, they can always reach out. All concerns, right, questions, issues, if they want to share any information. Incredible. Senator Osler, it has been a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. Hi, 
I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.